0: You know, I say that every week after I read the scripture. It's from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. And here's the context. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and God tells Isaiah to cry out. So Isaiah asks, what shall I cry? And the Lord answers and says, all flesh is grass." And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So when I quote that each week after the scripture reading, I am reminding us that we are all like grass that withers and any loveliness that is in us is like the flower that fades but the word of god which we just read will stand forever it will never perish and its beauty will never fade it's a helpful reminder any time we read the scriptures but today especially i think it is fitting the last lord's day i spoke to you about the nature of scripture as God breathed and the authority that Scripture carries because it has been breathed out by God, it is his word to us and the efficacy of Scripture as it profits us for life and ministry. And so on the basis of those truths, Paul now gives Timothy a solemn charge. He says, I charge you, therefore, on the basis of what was just said regarding Scripture as being the very words of God to us, I now give you this charge. And the charge is preach the word. Now this charge is not to Timothy alone. It is applicable to pastors and elders today. So this sermon is for me and Paul and the rest of you can tune out. No, no. The this sermon, this text is applicable to pastors and elders today, but it is applicable to all Christians, to parents and grandparents as they uh, teach the word of God to their children and their grandchildren, and to all Christians who would interact with a, a lost and a dying world that is in desperate need of the salvation that is found in Christ alone, who is revealed to us in the Scriptures. So this morning we'll look at first the seriousness of this charge and then the matter of the charge. What is it that we've been charged to do? And then the manner of the charge. How is it that we are to go about fulfilling this duty? And we'll begin with the seriousness of the charge. Now, to charge someone with something is to lay on them a duty or an obligation It's to to burden them with that obligation. And so we use that word charge in financial transactions. If you charge something, that is, you pay for it with credit, you now have an obligation to repay that charge, that credit. So this text places a charge or an obligation upon us to preach the gospel. Now, we'll get to the matter of the charge the what we are obligated to do in a few moments. But first, I want us to understand how serious this is. It is a solemn duty or obligation which the Spirit, speaking through the apostle, has laid on us. In his commentary on this passage, Puritan pastor and author Matthew Henry encourages his readers to observe how awfully this charge is introduced. Observe how awfully this charge is introduced. Now, he doesn't mean that it's badly or poorly introduced. He means that it is all fully introduced. It is full of awe. It's serious, to the point of being frightful even. This charge should bring us to our knees beneath the weight of it. And I mean that. Prayerless preaching is powerless preaching, We should fall to our knees in prayer because of the seriousness of this charge we have been given. I often tell people who ask me that the hardest part about preaching is not the preparation. It's not figuring out what to say. The hardest part about preaching is the weight of it. The one who preaches is speaking God's words to God's people. That's serious business. The same is true in all circumstances in which we are speaking God's words to another. All matters of discipleship, whether you're teaching a class, training your children in the home, speaking to a co-worker or a waiter at a restaurant, if you are speaking God's word to another person, this is serious business. You should feel the weight of that. And here, this charge to preach the word is given... We're told before God, I charge you therefore before God or with God as a witness. Now the Spirit says this through the apostle to Timothy and to us. You are charged, obligated, duty-bound to preach the word with God as a witness. Paul had already instructed Timothy earlier in this letter to be diligent to present himself to God as a workman who had no need for shame because he had rightly divided the word of truth. That is, he had handled it correctly, like a a priest in the Old Covenant dividing the sacrifice, cutting it open, laying it out carefully so that the sacrificial system could be followed. Likewise, the New Testament, the New Covenant pastor, is to carefully handle the word of God, laying it open like a spiritual meal for the congregation, and he is to do so diligently and carefully in order to present himself to God, approved. And this God to whom we are to present ourselves for approval, this God who breathed out his self-revelation to us and preserved it for us in a book, this God is watching as a witness to see and observe how we will fulfill the charge that we have been given. You can't escape his gaze. Shall he who formed the eye, shall he not see? Psalm 94.9 or Psalm 33.13, The Lord looks from heaven and sees all the sons of men. Surely his eye is on those who have been charged with the duty to preach his word. And so Paul writes, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God the Spirit calls God the Father as a witness to this charge. He sits on his throne in heaven and sees all. He serves as a witness, but it's not the Father only. This is an act of the Trinity. The Spirit calls the Father as witness and the Son as judge. Matthew 28:18 and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, "All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." All authority has been given to the Son. John 5:22 for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Now think of that. The one who died in your place on the cross Your sins placed on him. He bore the weight of God's wrath because of your iniquity. Judgment has been given to him. Now that's heavy. That's weighty. Near the end of his visions, John records in Revelation 19, verse 11 Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. And we're told in our text that he will judge the living and the dead. And the time of his judgment will be at his appearing and at his kingdom. That is, when he returns in glory and triumph to consummate the promises of the coming kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth and forever join together the throne of God and the throne of David in one, Thy kingdom come. When that happens, then will come the judgment. The living are those who are alive in the flesh at his glorious appearing, and they will be judged, but the dead will not escape his judgment. For again, John has this vision in Revelation 20, verses 12 through 13, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who was in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Death and the grave delivered up those who they had previously claimed when Jesus called them to stand before him to be judged. Death and the grave shrink back in submission and give up what was previously theirs. The earth and the heavens flee at the sight of his face. Death and the grave cower in submission before him and he sits on his throne to judge all men. Now, do you see why Matthew Henry said that this charge to preach the word that is given before God and the Lord Jesus Christ is an awful charge? If that picture doesn't strike you with awe, there's something wrong with your heart. We are charged with a duty before the face of him from whom heaven and earth flee to preach his words to his people We should feel the weight of this awful charge. But now let us turn our attention to the matter or the content of the charge. What is it that we are duty-bound to do? Paul writes, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now this is simple to say, but for many it's apparently not clear what it means. Because preaching has fallen on hard times in recent years. So let's see if we can clearly define what it means to preach the word. And first we have to define preaching. What is preaching? Now modern Americans, I don't know about the rest of the world, but here in America in the modern day, we have a tendency to use words so generally and generically that they lose their true meaning. Take the word love, for example. What does it mean to love your wife and to love pizza? The love that you have for your wife better be different than the love that you have for pizza. But we use the word generically of both things. Well, the same is true in the church. We use words generically, and they begin to lose some of their meaning. We apply the word missions to a lot of things that are not properly missions, and the word begins to lose some of its meaning. If everything is missions, now all of a sudden we have to come up with a new term to describe the man who goes to a previously unreached people group to translate the scriptures, to preach the gospel, to convert sinners and plant churches. What do we call him if everything is missions? Now we start talking about frontier missions. We have to come up with all these descriptors. If everyone is a missionary, then we have to come up with new terms. It's not the same thing as going to a park in an American city and performing a skit. Not the same thing as a missionary who's going to a foreign mission field. We need a biblical definition of what preaching is. And we often use the word preaching in a similar fashion, loosely speaking, if conducting yourself with integrity in the workplace, which is a good thing, by the way, but if that qualifies as preaching, then what am I doing now? How do we distinguish between the two? Well, first and foremost, preaching is an act of public proclamation. The word technically means to proclaim, to publish or as a herald, to announce something, a message. Now, you'll notice that this definition requires something. It requires the use of words. It requires that we speak a message. So the old adage to preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, just wrong. You can't preach the gospel without using words. That's part and parcel of what it means to preach. And here, our text says to preach the word. You can't preach the word without the use of words. It just doesn't work. So at a bare minimum, preaching means to speak some message to other people. Biblical examples of preaching demonstrate that preaching can be done evangelistically in, in a public setting to crowds of non-Christians, non-believers. And we see this in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 7, but primarily Preaching in the book of Acts takes place in two settings and to two groups of people. First, to the Jews who were already familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and the promises of the Messiah, and largely this happened in the setting of the synagogue and to believers wherever they were gathered as a local church, whether that be in a home or in a public space somewhere. We see this in in Acts 9, from about Acts 9 to the end of the book, most of what is called preaching happens either in a synagogue or in the local church. Acts 9, verse 20, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Acts 13, verse 5, and when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Acts 13, 42, and when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So we can see that the practice was on the Sabbath day to go into the synagogue and preach Christ to those who were already familiar with the concept of a Messiah. Then in Acts 15, we read about the church in Antioch. And it says that Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Obviously, this is in the context of the local church. Here in Second Timothy, it should be clear that Paul is thinking primarily of that context in the church. He's speaking to Timothy who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And he's telling him to to disciple the people in the church, to refute false teaching in the church. And so here when he tells Timothy to preach the word, it should be obvious he means to God's people in the local gathering of the church. And we'll see in a few moments that there are three goals of preaching that that Paul lays out for us in verse 2, and they're for the benefit of believers and of the church. But in Acts There's this interesting thing that I noticed this week as I prepared, that there is a word that continually recurs throughout the book of Acts that seems to be used interchangeably with preaching. In fact, right around uh, chapter 9, we begin to see this word show up, and then by chapter 17, it's almost exclusively the only word that's used, and preaching isn't used as much anymore. Maybe one other time after chapter 17. Listen to this from chapter 17, verse two. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So Paul reasons with them from the scriptures and says he's preaching Christ to them. And that term "reasoned" or "reasoning" from the scriptures is used almost exclusively for the rest of the book of Acts. 17:17. 17, 17, Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshippers. Acts 18, verse four. and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And then this one from Acts 19. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years. So Paul goes to the synagogue in Ephesus, And for three months, he reasons with them from the scriptures, preaching Christ to them. And then when some of them begin to cause trouble, Paul withdraws and he takes the disciples, that is the Christians, those who had believed, he withdraws and takes them to a rented lecture hall where he reasons with them from the scriptures for two more years on a daily basis. And so I think we could safely conclude that biblically speaking, preaching must at least contain this idea of reasoning from the scriptures, which is exactly what I'm doing right now, by the way. I am reasoning with you from the scriptures to convince you that this is what preaching is. And, and we've just seen preaching in the book of Acts is equated with reasoning from the scriptures, and our text tells us to preach the word. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment, but... Here's my favorite verse about preaching, and it's actually from the Old Testament. This is from Nehemiah chapter 8. It does not use the word preach or preaching, but I think this is a great description of what preaching is supposed to be. It says in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, So they read distinctively from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So that they here are the priests and the Levites. They read from the book, from the law of God, from the scriptures, and then they explained what they had read so that the congregation could understand it and know what it meant. That's the basic idea of preaching, preaching the word. Read the book, reason from it so that the congregation understands what has been read. Which leads us to the second important part of this charge. Preach the word. The Greek word here is logos. This is the same word that's used in John's gospel to refer to the incarnate Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word, the logos became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Christ Himself uses that same word in reference to the Old Testament scriptures. In John fifteen twenty five says, "But this happened." This is Christ speaking. But this happened that the word, the Logos, might be fulfilled, which is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. And he's quoting there from Psalm chapter 35, and he calls it the Logos, the Word. He also tells us that all of the Scriptures are speaking about Him, the incarnate Word. So when Paul tells us, preach the Word, I think what he means is preach the Word from the Word, preach Christ from the Scriptures reason from the scriptures to Jesus as the Christ. That's what Paul continually does throughout the book of Acts. Now this means that to charge someone to preach the word prohibits us from preaching our own opinions, from preaching our own soapboxes, from our preaching our own pet topics whatever they might be. Now, certainly, the Scriptures address all sorts of topics, all sorts of things that have bearing on how we conduct ourselves in the world. The Scriptures influence how we vote, but it is not my job to tell you how to vote. It's my job to preach Christ from the Scriptures, to reason from the Scriptures with you, as Paul did in Acts 24 about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And if I do that, the rest will follow after. It will flow out of hearts and minds that have been renewed into the likeness of Christ. And so it will affect how you vote and how you live in the world. But our calling is to preach the word from the word. And as Matthew Henry said, it is an all full charge. But our text continues to give us further instructions regarding how we are to perform this preaching. How are we to do so? In verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So we're told to preach Christ from the Scriptures, to reason from the Scriptures to Christ, and we're exhorted to be ready in season and out of season, summer and winter, No, that's not what he means. He says that we are to be ready or instant, to be prepared, to be on our tiptoes so that we can jump at the first opportunity to proclaim Christ. The same word is used again in verse 6. It's translated ready here in verse 2. In verse 6 he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand at hand. It's the same verse. It means that it's ready, it's near, it's waiting eagerly for the opportunity. That's how we are to be in regards to proclaiming Christ from the scriptures, ready, willing, and eager. This goes back to how we ended last week when I quoted Spurgeon regarding John Bunyan who was so saturated in the scriptures that he couldn't speak without quoting a text? That's what this text is telling us to do. Be ready with the word so that there is no hesitation. At every opportunity, proclaim Christ to anyone who is willing to listen. And particularly in the church, the pastor must be ready to speak of Christ at all times. In season, When the pastor feels good, feels ready, is prepared, confident, congregation is eager to feast on the meat of the word, but also out of season, when he's tired, feels unprepared, when the congregation is not eager to be convicted by the scriptures. Matthew Henry says, We must do it in season. That is, let slip no opportunity and do it out of season that is not shift off the duty under some pretense this is particularly aimed at pastors here but the same is true of parents as you teach and train your children do so with the word and be ready prepared ahead of time and be resolved because there will be times when they will come to you and they will they will be interested and they'll have questions and they're eager to hear what God has to say from the scriptures. And there will be times when it feels like you're trying to reason with a cage full of monkeys hopped up on caffeine. They won't listen. They're bouncing up and down. You're tired, you're worn out, you're trying to do family worship. You don't think they're paying attention. Be ready, in season and out of season. The same is true when you're speaking with your neighbor, a co-worker, wherever you find yourself. Be ready always to speak of Christ. Now, these things are not properly preaching, as I said earlier, and we shouldn't call them preaching. This passage is particularly aimed at elders, but the principle remains and is applicable to all Christians. Aside from being ready, we're given three goals in preaching or three areas of importance. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Now, these are not things we do in addition to preaching. These are things we do while we preach. To convince or reprove means to correct error with reasoned argument. This is the primary focus of Paul's preaching in the book of Acts. As he goes into the synagogues and addresses the Jews who have the Old Testament scriptures, they've studied them, they're familiar with the promises of the Messiah, and so he reasons with them from scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. They they knew about the Messiah, the Christ, but they had some wrong ideas about what he would do and what he would be like, and so Paul is convincing them, he's reasoning from the scriptures to correct their error to reason from the scriptures is to follow the logical progression of the thought through a passage to arrive at the main point. This is what the reformers called thinking God's thoughts after him. God has spoken in his word. We read and study the words of scripture and we think God's thoughts after him. We reason through it. What is God communicating to us here? This is where preaching must always begin, with the Word, reasoning from the words of Scripture, explaining it, addressing the listener's intellect so that they understand the text and the ideas that are being conveyed. This is what happened in Nehemiah 8 as they explained the Scripture that had been read. So preaching must begin here with the mind, with the head, but it must not end here. For the text says we are to convince and rebuke. Now, to rebuke means to reprimand or admonish. This has to do with our actions, with our behavior. The preacher is to reason from the scriptures and then apply those scriptures to the congregation so that they not only understand it, but that they obey it. That you do what it says. At times, it means reprimanding wrong behavior, correcting steering them back onto course. Think about the idea of a shepherd with a flock of sheep as he's trying to lead them to pasture. Occasionally, one will wander astray out of the flock and off the path, and the shepherd has to gently reach out and correct them, put them back on course so that they don't fall off a cliff. That's what we are being told to do here. The elder must do this by means of the Scripture, appealing not only to the mind, but addressing the hands, redirecting the will to submit to Christ. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, says the idea is that the minister is not merely to reason about sin and convince men that it is wrong, but he must solemnly admonish them not to do it and to warn them of the consequences. A profitable preaching starts with the word, reasons from it, convinces the mind, but must address the will, the behavior, the hands, if you will, of the listener. And then thirdly, we are not only to convince and rebuke, but to exhort the listener. Now, this means to give comfort and hope to the faint-hearted, encouraging them to trust in Christ for their righteousness, their strength, and their hope. This is the same word that's translated comforted in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Same word. We've reasoned with the head. We have instructed the hands. Now we are to encourage the heart of the listener. Paul uses this word in his second letter to the Corinthian church. In his first letter, he had instructed them on an issue of church discipline. They had a man in the church who needed to be rebuked corrected. He was doing something that was wrong. He was sinning. And so Paul instructs them in church discipline, and they carry out that church discipline, and it works. The man repents. And so in his second letter, Paul writes saying, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. There's our word lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I don't remember where I first heard this, but someone once said that preaching is the act of afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. Afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. And that's what's being urged in this text in Second Timothy. Reason from the scriptures convincing the listener of the truth and then apply that truth to the congregation wherever it is needed either to rebuke and correct error or to exhort and encourage those who are downhearted and hope without hope but then it is added preach the word be ready in season and out of season convince rebuke exhort with all long suffering The preacher must be patient. Sometimes a person is changed quickly by the power of the Spirit working through the preached word. They hear one sermon and it changes their life. But that's not how it works most of the time. Sanctification is a gradual process that happens over the course of time, one little step after another over the course of our lifetimes. And so the preacher must be in it for the long haul, must be long-suffering and patient, intending to preach the same truths over and over again, convincing, rebuking, and exhorting time and time again, being patient with people. Now, this is not an excuse for sin or obstinacy, If someone is not progressing in sanctification, they're not putting sin to death, being renewed in the image of Christ, then they are to be rebuked, as we've just been told. So we don't sweep sin under the rug and ignore it, but our rebuke had better demonstrate the humility and the grace that should come from one who knows that he is a sinner as well and is also in need of grace and forgiveness. And that long-suffering means to continue teaching the sound doctrine or the pattern of sound words over and over again. And so Paul says, with all long-suffering and teaching, or some translations say, and doctrine. Calvin, in his commentary, said that reproofs either fall through their own violence or vanish into smoke if they do not rest on doctrine. Both exhortations and reproofs are merely aids to doctrine and therefore have little weight without it. If we reprove someone and it's not done with patience, it will be harsh and not profitable. If we rebuke someone to change their behavior and we don't reason from them, reason with them, from the scriptures, to convince them of their error, then the reproof is meaningless. You can't rebuke someone's behavior if you don't have a basis for that, reasoned from the scriptures. The word must be preached. That is the calling, the all full charge that is given to pastors and elders in this text. And the underlying principle applies to all believers The Word of God is central to our love for God and our life together as His people. And so the Word must be preached. As our confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 8, that the Word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner, and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, may have hope. That's the result of the Word being preached that we worship God in an acceptable manner and that we have comfort and hope from the scriptures. And that is your elders' prayer for this congregation as we seek to preach the word from the word. Let's pray.